Hello and welcome to another Remote Warfare Programme podcast. Today's discussion will be on the UK's report on the Modernising Defence Programme. So I will be asking our two experts some questions. Our two experts today are Megan and Liam. Do you want to introduce yourselves? Yep, so I'm Liam, I'm the Advocacy Officer for the Remote Warfare Programme. And I'm Megan, I'm Research and Policy Assistant for the same programme. Thank you both for coming. So let's start off with asking why was there a modernising defence programme review? That's a good place to start. Uh, so this came about, God, this is a long time ago now, but this came about um, not long after the 2017 uh, general election, uh, where the government basically wanted to look at um, the threats facing the UK. Uh, this was sort of came out of the perception that the, the threat had changed since the 2015 uh, Strategic Defence and Security Review, uh, which would have been undertaken by the previous government, of course. Um, and that's when they came up with the National Security Capability Review, the NSCR. So this was going to be led by the government's National Security Advisor, uh, who sits at the Cabinet Office, uh, so has a very close relationship with the Prime Minister, uh, Sir Mark Sedwell. Now, what happened really was there was a controversy around the fact that the NSCR was going to be uh, fiscally neutral. Uh, now, it wasn't entirely clear. Do you want to just, uh, just touch on what fiscally neutral means? Yeah, and sure, what, sure. Where that came from? So, fiscally neutral basically means that there wasn't necessarily going to be an uplift in spending on capabilities. Uh, so, we just look at um, what the uh, threat picture looks like out there in the big wide world, and we then sort of rearrange our capabilities. Now, of course, that means that if you are going to prioritise certain capabilities over others, that if you're not going to put more money into it, uh, that you'd have to cut other capabilities. So this led to okay. uh, a big controversy around um, the Royal Marines. This was not just around the prospect of their numbers being cut from around 10,000 but to, to around 6,000, but also cutting uh, their amphibious capabilities, so HMS Albion and HMS Bulwark. And then maybe just to add to that, so it was actually it was quite likely that the NSDR was going to lead to cuts. Um, because the 2015 SDSR came out the same time as the spending review, and it didn't. It made more commitments than the spending review allowed. Um, so they had to find somewhere to, to kind of made, make some um, cuts to the budget. Um, that's part of the reason that the defense strand of that review was taken to be a different thing, so they wouldn't have to be fiscally neutral. Yeah. So as Megan's touched on there, the eventually we got to a position where, with the new defense secretary Gavin Williamson, who took over from um, Sir Michael Fallon, who had to resign because of um, certain uh, allegations about his conduct with women. Uh, so he resigned back in November, and Gavin Winston, who was the government chief whip, a fairly sort of unknown individual among the military, um, sort of seen as a, a fairly youthful individual coming along um, and not being exactly experienced for the job. But anyway, to his credit, uh, he did secure in January a commitment by the government that they would, as Megan's touched on, have a separate defence-led uh, modernising defence programme. So that's how we ended up with the NSCR, which was led by the uh, National Security Advisor, and then the MDP, which was going to be defence-led. I think it was the first time that review was put in the hands of the MOD itself. So it was quite significant, and also fundamentally, uh, it was not going to be fiscally neutral. So there's that phrase again. It was, it was going to be, if necessary, if the review came out and said, we need more money, at least this is what it was sold as, then okay, the government would 
uh, explore that and consider putting more money in capabilities. I mean, it's quite, quite clear from the beginning that Gavin Williamson very much expected to have more funds in the defence. Yeah. Um, and he expected that to, be, that to be easy, I think, like there was a feeling that he really thought that was going to be quite an easy job. I think he definitely uh, wanted his legacy to be tested on, on his commitment to yeah. getting more spending in uh, to defence. And I mean, it had come from, as I say, being a PPS to David Cameron. PPS. Uh, yeah, sorry. A <laughs> effectively a parliamentary aide uh, to David Cameron to then being Theresa May's chief of chief whip, um, to then being defence secretary. So yeah. you can definitely see his climb, uh, and there's a lot of speculation that he sees himself as being a future prime minister. So we shall see. All very interesting. Mm. I think we should move on though. Yes, from so, the politics of it all. Yeah. So what did you want, or what did the remote warfare program want the NDP to do and to say? So I think for us, uh, we were very much hoping that given the MVP was going to be a, it was going to resolve the issue of spending um, within UK defence, we thought that it was going to address one of the most common forms of engagement, which we define as remote warfare. Um, and we very Do much you want to just describe what remote warfare is? Yeah, absolutely. So remote warfare, warfare is the move away from large boot-on-the-ground deployments by Western forces towards... So that's the Iraq and Afghanistan type operations? Yeah, exactly. So very much after the history of Iraq and Afghanistan, um, we've seen a move towards supporting local forces instead of deploying Western forces themselves. So often through air support or training and getting equipment. Um, but we often see that they support the locals instead. So we've seen that, for example, against ISIS in Syria and Iraq. Um, and, and regional forces as well, like it with Saudi Arabia. Yeah, absolutely. So we very, we very much thought that that was going to be the review. Um, it was going to address the most common forms of engagement. And that's not quite what we've seen. Yeah, I think Megan's absolutely bang on. And I think something that uh, we did back in March 2017, which of course, Abby, you were very much a part of, was a report on this move towards what is a much more discreet uh, sort of approach to war fighting, right? Uh, as, as Megan has alluded to, you're, you're using special forces, you're using intelligence sharing, sort of capabilities that are not as transparent as the big operations in Iraq and Afghanistan where you've got a lot of regular conventional forces on the ground. Um, and therefore, we sort of thought that it was, it was an opportunity to look at the shortcomings in terms of um, transparency and accountability on figures around deployments, around financing of these um, remote warfare capabilities as we see them and thinking, right, okay, let's look at where we are spending money, because you can't talk about, I mean, the Defence Committee has been you know, really strong on saying we need to spend at least 3% of, of GDP on defence. Uh, Dr. Jim Lewis, who chairs that committee, says we need to spend 3% to keep us free, um, make it free to keep us free, I think it's his catchphrase. <laughs> um, but of course, you have to look at what sort of military uh, do we want, what sort of capabilities do we want in terms of what are our, our priorities as a country? If we're going, if, if as Megan describes, the most likely tasks are going to be remote warfare operations, and I think from our perspective, we'd say that that's likely to probably be predominantly the way that things are going to go over at least the next decade, then surely we need to have a discussion about those capabilities and then think, okay, well, let's invest uh, more money in those capabilities. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. kind of where. Uh, we hoped that MVP was going to go, yeah. but it doesn't seem, at least so far, and that might be changing because we've got the spending review this year, um, but thus far it doesn't seem like that conversation really has, has happened. Um, so, I mean, you talked about some of the aspects of remote warfare. I want to draw everyone's attention to the excellent blog series you did, but do you want to talk a bit on some of the things you highlighted within that series 
as areas of the NDP that you hoped would be covered. Maybe do you want to talk about defence? Yeah, so I think. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the big things we we're hoping for was to figure out um, more about defence engagements, which is this very blurry category of um, engagements by the UK Army. Um, I think in their chart they describe it as the non-combatant non use of their military. Um, but it does seem to be very, a very fluffy category. I'm not quite sure what it means and what it entails. And of course, um, I think on that point, if you're putting troops in theatres, yeah. They're always going to be near the front line in some way. Absolutely. And it's about drawing that distinction as we've sort of tried to do in terms of combat and non-combat and, and why the government would define something as combat or non-combat, whether that's because of the nature of the operation or actually it's a political decision because they don't want uh, too much attention being drawn to it. Yeah, so very much like definitely. So saying that something is non-combat -com doesn't mean that it's not and that it's not going to develop into being a combat mission, definitely. So other than defence engagement, what are the other areas that you looked at within that blog series? So just quickly, we also looked at um, the UK's investment in drones, so specifically around the new drone fleet, the protected drone fleet. Uh, the government's investing in 20 of these, but also we we're looking at in terms of the operating costs for them, which includes sort of equipment, managing um, and their repairs, etc., but also in terms of munitions dropped as part of the and we also looked at special forces, which is one of the most secretive parts of the UK's military, as well as intelligence sharing, which is a big part of remote warfare, as it is at the moment. Very good. And I would uh, in encourage everyone to go out and read them. But since, since they were published, the NDP was released. What, how did it square with what you wanted it to do? What are the big takeaways for you both? So I think for me, uh, fundamentally, and I, it goes back to when Earl Howe, the Defence Minister, was announcing this in the House of Lords, one of the peers turned around and said that this was just such an underwhelming report, uh, given that it's taken, it's the longest strategic review, if it is that, of Britain's defence capabilities ever, uh, and it's a fairly vacuous document. But I think if we're actually going to look at it in terms of what it does tell us, uh, it definitely confirms that the shift in strategic focus uh, has pivoted towards state-based threats and specifically around um, the, the threat posed by Russia. Actually, Megan and I were talking earlier that you can tell from the language of the report uh, that they obviously have gone to great lengths to mention Russia and insert that in there quite frequently. And also haven't spoken very much about terrorism. For example, only mentioning, I think, one, one time in the entire report, which is quite noticeable. Yeah, exactly. Um, but in terms of maybe the relevancy to, to our work, uh, there is definitely a focus on um, investments in uh, placing defence capabilities in Africa uh, and also around increasing cooperation with Gulf countries. Um, so that, I would say, that there's probably the key takeaways. I think, I mean, it's interesting that you mention the UK's focus on the continent of Africa. I think the line in it was around the British Peace Support Team, which obviously me and Emily, our colleague at the Remote Warfare Programme, were there in September last year. And it was interesting that this was held up as an example of the way in which the UK was doing well at defence engagement. When we were there, we really got the sense that the rhetoric didn't match the reality, that what they were being asked to do far surpassed the resources that they had. So they recently changed from being peace, the British Peace Support Team, East Africa, 
to the British Peace Support Team Africa to focus on continental capability. And they had um, three extra people. So the, they said themselves that they didn't know how they were supposed to do the knowledge retention and the um, passing on knowledge to new people coming through with such a, an influx in capabilities. So, I mean, it, it's interesting that those are the, the two things highlighted as defence engagement as we look at it, because I think it's interesting to look a defence engagement as it's framed in this report. Yeah, so first of all, it's just very difficult to figure out where they are in fact talking about defence engagement because it is a blurry category. We don't know when that's what they're referring to because they don't say those words. Um, but for example, they outlined 25 tasks that they want to fulfill to help deliver the national security objectives. And those objectives are to protect our people, protect our global influence, and promote our prosperity. And within those, they have 25 goals, but it's difficult to really figure out which ones are defence engagements and how they're paid for and whether they're cost-efficient, actually. Um, but for example, just to give an example, one of those tasks is to conduct capacity building with partners, allies, and multinational organizations in support of the UK strategy. So again, that's just a very broad um, goal. We don't actually know what they mean by that and how they're going to implement that. I think it would also be interesting to see, like taking your point on board about the, the lack of strategic direction that the military are feeling, um, in terms of what's coming out of Whitehall and how it's felt on the ground. What's been interesting over the last sort of year, I suppose, is I get the sense that there has been a step change in the way that the UK is looking at Africa. Uh, and I think that's not only um, because of Brexit, we have to say, uh, and wanting to leverage defence as a means to improve uh, its trade links with countries like Kenya, uh, there is now a new trade envoy, Pauline Latham MP, to Kenya. So definitely there's that focus on where are we going post-Brexit and how can we use defence as a means to leverage that. Uh, and we also saw that Theresa May was out in Kenya for the first time, the first Prime Minister of, for 30 years to go and visit Kenya. So there definitely has been that change um, in terms of the actions that have been taken by the government. but. Going back to your point, is it simply rhetoric that's not actually trickling down across the departments uh, and actually reaching the troops on the ground in terms of upscaling resources, making it clear exactly what the UK wants to achieve? Because it's sort of going back to what Megan was saying about defence mm -hmm. engagement being fairly wishy-washy, but exactly what the UK wants to achieve is still wishy-washy. I think, I think that's a great point, and it comes to some of the things that you were talking about in the blog, blog series as well, like how well are we winning the narrative how well are we communicating what we want to achieve would you say that any of those problems more broadly have been addressed by the mdp it's definitely in the report um, but how much it moves away from what has been committed in the past is questionable so we know that back in 2010 with the strategic defense review of the coalition government that one of the commitments was or the recognitions was we needed to win both the battle of the narrative as well as the battle on the ground and we have banged on about this as a program for a very long time in terms of commenting more about what special forces are doing in certain circumstances understanding more about sort of the role that drones are playing intelligence sharing is playing that's what all this blog series was about um, so yeah I, I'm, I'm, it's good to see that it's in there uh, but how much that will actually lead to a change is, as I say, questionable. There is another element that was quite positive that came out of this, if I can just touch on that, and that was the Defence Policy Board. 
so this is a concept that will basically establish an external body of or external panel of experts that will feed into defence policy and strategy making. What's interesting about this is it links sort of directly with our recommendation in one of the reports that you, Abby, and, and Emily wrote um, about how we improve that strategic coherence from what's happening in Whitehall, what's being said in Whitehall, and how that leads to um, activity on the ground um, in terms of having a external body that feeds into the National Security Council. So it'd be interesting to see if the, the DPB, as I'm now calling it, uh, could, yeah. be, <laughs> could be a pilot for perhaps uh, an external people's NSC, as we've described it, mm -hmm. uh, or external shadow NSC, or whatever you want to call it, to feed into those strategic discussions at the top level of government. And I think even, sorry, Megan, just to jump in, even before we even tried to make this um, government-wide, I think the acknowledgement that there needs to be fresh perspectives to to cut across the status quo, to, um, to question fatal mm -hmm. assumptions, is a really positive step and something that we've noticed in our engagement lower down the ranks and it's great to see that that's being brought up to the top of the MOD. So I'm going to go back a little bit actually. Um, you were asking before about whether they have any focus on steering the narrative and I think it's interesting that even when they do in the report it's often focused on I think or at least I get the impression that it's focused on cyber and it's very much in regards to like state-based threats as opposed to the kind of information sharing that we're talking about which is very much kind of terrorism focused in remote warfare. Um, so I think it's, really, it's interesting how much the focus has shifted away from, from the previous ways of engaging to very much state-based. I think, I think that's a really good point. And, and I mean, there is a section in the report where it referenced that defence needs to be a bit more transparent about, about what it's doing. And I think really, although all that, that's fantastic, but I think really that was a reference in terms of how it has a relationship with service personnel and their families when it comes to you know, talking about uh, capita or um, yeah. accommodation. Uh, which have obviously been big topics over the last couple of years. So I think it'd be great if they also sort of extended that to uh, more transparency around mm -hmm. its operations as well. Yeah, and I think I think as well, and it comes exactly to Megan's point that there's um, this assumption that we can win these types of battles, the information warfare and conflict more generally, with additions in, in capability rather than having a strategic assessment of what we need, what our mm -hmm. people need to be adapted to achieve, rather than stepping back from that and saying, where, what do we want to achieve and where do we want to achieve it? And not starting with the assumption that more kit and capability will automatically help us to achieve it. There's an excellent quote that's something like, um, if we just advance in technology, we'll be a, a global leader. Mm -hmm. It just seems... Seems to miss the point somewhere. They kind of link um, having the best capabilities to having a good strategy. Yeah, they don't yeah. actually engage with what they need to do to get that strategy right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think what's what's quite interesting is that one of the big things about this report is to maximise the lethality, mass, and reach of Britain's yeah. armed forces, as if you know the the armed forces have not been you know uh, sort of operating in that way in the past. Yeah. Um, so you see, I'm not quite sure what that will mean in terms of capabilities, activities, if you create an army that is more lethal than it is already. I mean, surely soldiers are trained in a way that they're meant to be lethal operators, right? That's, that's what they're there for. That's what defence is, is, is most often about. 
Um, so yeah, I think there's some, some strange and interesting things in there that haven't quite yet been clarified entirely. I think what you just said when you said, I'm not quite sure what they mean, that's our baseline <laughs> conclusion. <for laughs> and yes. I think maybe there is a great place Absolutely. to end then. <laughs> Thank you very much for both speaking to me. I hope that's not created more questions no. than it started out with, although I fear it may have done. Speak to me whenever you want. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, speak to you soon.